You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, March 24th, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, more young people are getting colorectal cancer from the Wall Street Journal and further evidence of a link between vitamin D and dementia prevention from New Atlas. Plus, should you ever pop a blister from WebMD and more time permitting? Here's our first report. More younger people are getting colorectal cancers and doctors don't know why. Actor Chadwick Boseman's death from colon cancer in 2020 brought attention to the trend. By Brianna Abbott from the Wall Street Journal. The share of colorectal cancer diagnoses among people under 55 has nearly doubled over the past three decades, a report showed, a shifting burden of disease that doctors are working to understand and catch earlier. The American Cancer Society said that about 20% of new colorectal cancer diagnoses were in patients under 55 in 2019, compared with 11% in 1995. Some 60% of new colorectal cancers in 2019 were diagnosed at advanced stages, the research and advocacy group said, compared with 52% in the mid-2000s and 57% in 1995 before screening was widespread. Cases and death rates for colorectal cancer have continued a decades-long decline overall thanks to screening, better treatments, and reductions in risk factors such as smoking, the ACS report's authors said. But the shift of the burden toward younger people and diagnoses at more advanced stages has oncologists on alert. The improvements have slowed, and they've slowed because of this opposite trend we're seeing in young people, said Kimmy Eng, director of the Young Onset Colorectal Cancer Center at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. More and more are getting diagnosed with cancer that might not be curable, she said. Colorectal cancer is one of the most common cancer types in the U.S. and the second deadliest behind lung cancer. Some 153,000 diagnoses are expected in 2023, ACS estimated, including some 19,500 cases in people under 50. The cancer is most common among people 65 to 74, but the case rate among people under 50 has risen quickly. Actor Chadwick Boseman's death in 2020 from colon cancer at age 43 drew more attention to the trend. Researchers aren't sure why rates among younger people are increasing. Changes in known risk factors, including unhealthy diets, alcohol consumption, and physical inactivity could contribute, but don't fully explain the trend, oncologists said. Some think environmental changes could be reshaping the makeup of microorganisms in people's bodies, called the microbiome, putting them at risk. I see so many young patients who live really healthy lifestyles that get diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer, said Dr. Ng. There are other environmental exposures that need to be looked at, she said. Drivers of the shift toward later-stage diagnoses also aren't clear, doctors said, but plateauing screening rates likely contribute. 
Younger patients also tend to be diagnosed at later stages, in part because doctors can mistake symptoms such as abdominal pain, blood in the stool, and unintended weight loss for something else in those age cohorts. The ACS and a panel backed by the U.S. government in recent years have lowered their recommended threshold for screening to 45 from 50 in light of the trends. Justin Kelly, age 46, said he didn't realize he was eligible for screening until it came up during a physical last spring. He didn't have any symptoms and saw himself as low risk. His stool-based screening test came back positive, and a colonoscopy revealed that he had stage 3 cancer. He is receiving treatment at Dana-Farber. Mr. Kelly learned after his diagnosis that he had Lynch syndrome, a genetic condition that increases the risk of some cancers. He said a doctor told him that if he hadn't come and his tumor hadn't been detected, he likely wouldn't have lived to 50. It's pretty jarring when you hear something like that, said Mr. Kelly, who works for a medical device company and lives in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I have a lot of friends who have rushed to schedule their colonoscopies after hearing my news, he said. About 43 percent of diagnoses under age 50 are in people 45 to 49, the ACS said in its report published in CA, a cancer journal for clinicians. There are a good portion that are still younger than 45, said Jordan Carofa, a radiation oncologist at the University of Cincinnati Cancer Center, who wasn't involved with the study. People with a family history of colorectal cancer or other risk factors should talk with their health provider before age 45, said ACS Chief Executive Officer Karen Knudsen. There are also screening gaps among people who are eligible, Dr. Knudsen said. Among people 45 to 49, screening uptake is around 20 percent, the report said. Uptake is also low among people without health insurance. Alaska Native, American Indian, and Black people have higher rates of colorectal cancer incidents and deaths than other groups, and men have higher case rates than women. There are also stark geographic disparities, with higher case and mortality rates in Appalachia and parts of the South and Midwest. The disparities could reflect differences in risk factors and in access to screening and treatment, oncologists said. Endoscopy services are limited in much of Alaska, for example, ACS said, resulting in lower screening rates and contributing to higher disease burden among Alaska natives. Up next, evidence mounts that vitamin D may be key to preventing dementia by Bronwyn Thompson from New Atlas. A new large-scale study has shown that warding off dementia early may be as simple for some as taking a vitamin D supplement. Previous research has found that low levels of vitamin D are linked to a higher risk of developing dementia. The hormone helps remove amyloid from the brain. Its accumulation is a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease, and it may also assist in preventing tau buildup, another protein at play in the development of dementia. While vitamin D is obtained through direct sunlight and diet, studies have consistently shown around 40% of Americans to be D deficient, with the figure higher depending on age and skin color, among other factors. Researchers looked at the link between dementia and vitamin D supplements in close to 12,400 people who had a mean age of 71 and were dementia-free at the start of the study. Within this group, 4,637 took vitamin D supplements. 
Of the 2,696 participants who progressed to dementia in the following decade, 75% had no exposure to vitamin D supplements prior to diagnosis. The remaining quarter had baseline exposure at the beginning of the study. Our findings give key insights into groups who might be specifically targeted for vitamin D supplementation, said Zahinor Ismail, lead researcher and professor at the University of Calgary and University of Exeter. Overall, we found evidence to suggest that earlier supplementation might be particularly beneficial before the onset of cognitive decline, he said. Researchers found 40% fewer dementia diagnoses among the 4,637 participants who took vitamin D supplements compared to the cohort that did not. Interestingly, the study also found that vitamin D supplements seemed to benefit a few subsets of participants more. Women, those with normal cognition as opposed to mild impairments, and in people who did not carry the APOE4 gene. Around 40 to 65 percent of dementia sufferers carry this gene, which is associated with the regulation of lipid metabolism and is linked to increased risk of developing the disease. Researchers believe that those with this gene absorb vitamin D from the intestine, which would potentially alter the efficacy of supplements. Preventing dementia or even delaying its onset is vitally important given the growing numbers of people affected, said Byron Kreese, co-author and senior lecturer in neuroscience at the University of Exeter. The link with vitamin D in this study suggests that taking vitamin D supplements may be beneficial in preventing or delaying dementia, he said. The study was published in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia, Diagnosis, Assessment, and Disease Monitoring. Up next, should you ever pop a blister? What causes these fluid-filled bubbles that pop up under your skin? How can you treat them? And when should you see a doctor? Here's what you need to know. Reviewed by Neha Pathak, MD, from WebMD. What are blisters? They're bubbles that pop up when fluid collects in pockets under the top layer of your skin. They can be filled with pus, blood, or the clear, watery part of your blood called serum. Most are shaped like circles. Depending on the cause, your blister could itch or hurt a lot or a little. They can appear as a single bubble or in clusters. Friction. Friction blisters, named for what causes them, are one of the most common kinds. Think back. Have you ever worn a new pair of hiking boots before you broke them in? Or raked the yard without a pair of garden gloves on your hands? Those are the kinds of things that could cause a friction blister on your heel, toe, thumb, or palm. Cold and heat. Go without gloves in winter and you could get blisters from frostbite. Stay out in the summer sun too long and you might get sunburn. The same thing can happen if you handle frozen goods or touch the stove burner. Both cold and heat are described as blistering for good reason. Extreme temperatures can hurt your skin. Blisters are a sign of a type of second-degree burn called partial thickness. Contact dermatitis. Rub up against a pesky plant like poison ivy, and you might end up with blisters of another sort. They're often a symptom of contact dermatitis, which happens when you touch something you're allergic to. It doesn't have to be poisonous, though. Some people react to soap, perfume, detergent, fabric, jewelry, 
Latex gloves were things used to make tools, toys, or other everyday objects. Atopic dermatitis, also known as eczema, this condition usually shows up as a rash, but with some types, you can also get blisters filled with clear fluid. Dishydrotic eczema causes these super itchy blisters on your palms and the soles of your feet. Blisters filled with pus are a sign your eczema has become infected. If you think you may have a skin infection, see your doctor. Bug bites. Insects can take the blame for some itchy blisters. Scabies are tiny mites that drill into your skin, sometimes leaving curved lines of blisters in their tracks. They often attack the hands, feet, wrists, and under the arms. Flea and bed bug bites can cause little blisters too. The brown recluse spider has an extra nasty bite that blisters before bursting to form a painful open sore. If that describes your blister, go to the doctor right away. Chickenpox and shingles. Some viruses can cause blisters. The herpes virus is a common culprit. It's present in chickenpox, a contagious illness that starts with red bumps that become blisters and then scab over. If you've had chickenpox, you also can get shingles, which targets nerves and causes a painful rash with blisters. The CDC says people 60 and older should get a one-time vaccination to prevent shingles. It also recommends two doses of chickenpox vaccine for anyone who hasn't had the disease. Herpes simplex. Fever blisters on your lips, mouth, or genitals are a sign of the herpes simplex virus. The fluid in these sores carries and spreads the virus through sex or by kissing or sharing utensils. Many people don't know they have herpes because symptoms are usually mild. If you have fever blisters or you think you've been exposed to herpes, talk to your doctor. There's no cure, but certain drugs can prevent or shorten outbreaks. Hand, foot, and mouth disease. This disease is named after the blisters it causes on these body parts. The infection mostly hits kids younger than 10. The virus spreads through contact with mucus, saliva, feces, or blisters of someone who's already sick. The infection starts out with a mild fever, runny nose, and sore throat. But the blisters are the big clue that leads to a diagnosis. Keep it clean and dry. Some blisters get better on their own. Your skin absorbs the fluid, and the blister flattens and peels off. Until that happens, you can use a donut-shaped piece of moleskin padding or tape to help keep it from breaking open. Don't pop it if you don't have to. Resist the urge to pop a blister unless it's so large, bigger than a nickel, or painful that you can't get around. If that's the case, your doctor might decide to puncture it with a sterile needle to let the fluid drain out. Once it's popped, whether your doctor does it or it breaks on its own, gently wash the area with soap and water and apply antibiotic ointment. Cover it with a bandage to keep it clean during the day, but take the bandage off at night to let it dry. When to see your doctor? Go to the doctor if you have a fever. Chills or other flu-like symptoms at the same time you have blisters. You could have a virus or an infection. Other symptoms of infection can include pain, swelling, redness or warmth, red streaks leading away from your blister, or pus coming from it. Blisters around your eyes or on your genitals are also cause for concern. Up next, 
Steps have dropped since COVID-19, and the trend is worrisome, study says, by Sandy Lamott from CNN. Americans took fewer steps during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, and they still haven't gotten their mojo back, a new study found. On average, people are taking about 600 fewer steps per day than before the pandemic began, said study author Dr. Evan Britton, associate professor of cardiovascular medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. To me, the main message is really a public health message, raising awareness that COVID-19 appears to have had a lasting impact on people's behavioral choices when it comes to activity, he said. Who walked the least? The study used data from the National Institutes of Health's All of Us research program, which is focused on identifying ways to develop individualized health care. Many of the 6,000 participants in the program wore activity trackers for at least 10 hours a day over multiple years and allowed researchers access to their electronic health records. Britton and his colleagues have used the ensuing data before, publishing a study in October of 2022 that found overweight people could lower their risk of obesity by 64 percent by increasing their steps taken from about 6,000 to 11,000 per day. In the new study published in JAMA Network Open, researchers compared steps taken by nearly 5,500 people who wore the program's activity trackers. Most were white women with an average age of 53. Step counts collected between January 1st of 2018 and January 31st of 2020 were considered pre-COVID. Steps tracked after that date until the end of 2021, which is when the study ended, were considered post-COVID. Results showed no difference in identified step activity based on sex, obesity, diabetes, and other illnesses or conditions such as coronary artery disease, hypertension, or cancer. People who took the fewest steps were socioeconomically disadvantaged under psychological stress and not vaccinated, the study said. Age made a difference as well, but in an unexpected manner. People over 60 were not impacted by the pandemic, the study found. They continued to keep their steps up. Oddly, it was younger people between 18 and 30 whose step counts were most impacted, Britton said. In fact, we found every 10-year decrease in age was associated with a 243-step reduction per day, he said. If this persists over time, it could certainly raise the risk of cardiovascular disease, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, and other conditions strongly linked to being sedentary, Britain said. However, it's too soon to know whether this trend will last, he said. Younger generations more at risk? Why would a younger generation lose steps while older people did not? I think it's difficult to interpret because it's only 600 steps, which you could argue is what some people would get simply walking into work and through their day, said Dr. Andrew Freeman, Director of Cardiovascular Prevention and Wellness at National Jewish Health in Denver, who was not involved in the research. I think the question is, who is more likely to work from home, he said. Younger generations make up the majority of workers in technology, software, and other professions that are able to work from anywhere, whereas older people may have less of those jobs, Freeman said. Whatever the reason, the study data shows that people were not moving as much during the pandemic as they used to. That is worrisome, Freeman added. 
If this trend remains, we should really be cognizant that if you're going to work from home, use either a standing, treadmill, or bike desk, he said, adding that managers of remote employees should insist people take periodic breaks for people to do exercise, which is also proven to improve mental clarity and acuity, he said. Health professionals should always be talking to their patients about activity levels, but the impact of COVID-19 might make those kinds of messages all the more important to discuss with their patients, Britton said. Up next, health officials consider another round of bivalent boosters for the most vulnerable Americans, by Brenda Goodman from CNN. U.S. officials are weighing whether to offer people who are at high risk of severe COVID-19 the chance to get another bivalent booster, according to a source familiar with the deliberations who asked not to be named because they were not authorized to share the details of ongoing discussions. While most Americans have gladly put pandemic precautions, including vaccines, in the rear view, some who are trying to protect themselves or their loved ones from severe illness have been anxiously wondering how soon they can get another shot. One of them is Michael Osterholm, who directs the University of Minnesota's Center for Infectious Disease Research and Prevention. The 70-year-old was quick to get an updated bivalent booster when they were rolled out in the U.S. last fall. The bivalent booster is now recommended for all Americans five and older at least two months after their last dose of a vaccine or three months after a COVID-19 infection. In February, roughly six months after his previous booster, Osterholm asked about topping off his protection with the second bivalent shot, but I was turned down, he said. Studies of the effectiveness of the COVID-19 vaccines show that their protection against infection, emergency room visits, and hospitalizations fades after six months as levels of neutralizing antibodies in the blood fall. Some protection is left in B cells and T cells, components of the immune system that retain a memory of past invaders, though the duration of that protection isn't fully understood. Last week, Alsterholm caught COVID-19 for the first time. I have no idea how I caught it, he said. I was wearing N95 masks the whole nine yards, he said. Osterholm knows that even if he had been able to get a second bivalent booster, he still might have gotten sick. The COVID-19 vaccines don't provide the kind of sterilizing immunity required to block infections completely. But he can't help but wonder whether he might have bounced back a little faster. I wonder what this would have been like if I had gotten it, he said. As the virus that causes COVID-19 has evolved, it has outsmarted every available kind of passive immunity, the antibodies doctors once gave vulnerable people to augment their own immune defenses. This makes vaccines one of a shrinking number of safeguards left for people at highest risk of severe COVID-19 infections. Protection from bivalent boosters may be waning. The bivalent boosters include two kinds of instructions to help the body fight off COVID-19. The first shows it how to recognize the ancestral strain of COVID-19, which is no longer circulating. The second set helps it better recognize and attack the Omicron virus and its descendants. Data collected by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows that the vaccine update has boosted protection. People who get the shots are 14 times less likely to die than unvaccinated people and three times less likely to die than vaccinated people who didn't get the bivalent booster.
A group of experts that advises the U.S. FDA on its vaccine decisions recommended in January that the agency phase out the monovalent vaccines, which protect only against the ancestral strain, and give bivalent doses for first shots to Americans who haven't had their first COVID-19 vaccines, a group that would primarily include babies and toddlers. Although the bivalent vaccines have been helpful, new data suggests that, just like the boosters that came before them, their protection may be starting to drop off. In the first two months after adults get the updated booster, the shot appears to be about 50 percent more effective at preventing hospital or emergency room visits because of COVID-19, on top of the little protection remaining from previous shots. By four months, however, the added protection from bivalent vaccines for those same measures falls to a little more than 30 percent, according to data presented at the February meeting of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Citing this trend, the United Kingdom and Canada have begun allowing certain people to get another bivalent booster. There are several ways the U.S. Food and Drug Administration could loosen restrictions on the use of the bivalent vaccines. The first is to fully approve these dual-strain shots. On February 24th, vaccine maker Pfizer asked the FDA to do that by submitting a supplemental biologics licensing application. Moderna has not announced a similar move and did not respond to a request for comment. If the FDA grants that application, it will give the CDC flexibility to change its recommendations for the use of the boosters, offering doctors permission to give another dose to vulnerable patients. This is absolutely currently the most frequently asked question I get, said Dr. William Schaffner, an infectious disease expert at Vanderbilt University. It's on the mind of that segment of the population that's thinking about this very, very carefully, he said. He doesn't see spring boosters on the horizon in the U.S., however. Neither the FDA or CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices will make recommendations without data, Schaffner said, and no one is collecting data now on yet another bivalent booster as regards either the effectiveness or safety of that, he said. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker.
If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.